It's nice to be back home. I arrived home late this past week from nine days at the 188th General Assembly. It was a good assembly, very long, very difficult. You will be hearing reports on the proceedings in the near future. I'll be speaking to the adult forum, giving a report in several weeks, and at that time I hope we can discuss the affairs of the Church as they pertain to the United Presbyterian Church, our great Church, in these very, very difficult times when we're trying to be the people of God. In coming home, though, I find that it's again laid upon me to say goodbye to another fine member of our congregation. Today is the last Sunday that Dr. William A. Ellis will be worshiping with us. Doc Ellis always sits in the last row of the sanctuary, whenever he's in town, that is, from his very busy schedule of lecturing and teaching on the subject of nutrition. I know many of you have been helped by him, and I cannot let this moment pass without a personal testimony, for he has been an instrument of God's healing in my life. During this past year and a half, which I've recuperated completely, it has been through God working through wonderful physicians like Dr. Ellis. And I thank you, Doc, together with all the others who have helped so many and have helped me. Doc goes like Abraham of old. He's in his 71st year. He's going out to a new endeavor of ministry in Arlington, Texas. And he leaves our community after 15 years and will be going now to this new place to continue in his enthusiastic, vibrant, helpful way. And we wish you Godspeed, Doc. Godspeed. Hear the word of God as it's found in Thessalonica, the first book, the fifth chapter, beginning to read at the first verse. But as to the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Amen. 
preachers are saying that hope is in short supply these days, but preachers are not the only ones. Recently, the Saturday Review magazine took what it called an inventory of hope, devoting the entire, entire issue to that particular subject. The purpose of the issue, writes editor Norman Cousins, is, and I quote, to examine and, if possible, to cut into the gloom that has settled over the nation. He goes on, the most serious problem confronting the nation is not inflation or the energy shortage or dwindling resources or danger of war in the Middle East. No, according to Cousins, the most serious problem is that American people are psychologically depleted and not primed for innovation. Our heads are down, he says, and heads that are down can't scan the horizon for new openings. Hurts of energy do not spring from the spirit of defeat. Ultimately, hopelessness leads into helplessness. Dr. Carl Menninger, founder, leader of the great Menninger Foundation out there in Kansas, has been saying this for a long time. That great psychiatrist back in 1963 wrote an article entitled Psychiatry and Hope that Time magazine published back at that time. And he said then, and I quote, the best thing that psychiatrists can do for their patients is to light for them a candle of hope to show them possibilities that may become sound expectations. This hope is in short supply these days, ladies and gentlemen, and on this Memorial Day weekend when we are recognizing many of our young people who will be going out into the tomorrows of life, I would like to challenge all of us to think about the helmet of hope. Oh, it's hard to say how we got into this recent malady of sickness, of of looking upon the pessimistic rather than the optimistic side, of losing hope. You name it and I'll find you some authority who can document the reason why he thinks that particular thing is the cause of the hopeless generation. Most people agree who study these things that it all began about 30 years ago at the end of the Second World War. There have been many contributing factors, I'm sure. Atomic and nuclear war, underemployment, overpopulation, the changing mores and morality within our land, the compounding of all sorts of problems in government, the loss of respectability amongst leadership, all sorts of things have added, I'm sure, and I don't mean to just add to the list today my own interpretation. I think the important question is not what has caused this, but what can we do about it? That's the prime factor. And I think our good friend, the great preacher, teacher, the Apostle Paul, can give us some help on this when he refers to hope as being a helmet. 
Now, I don't know how you ever thought about that, but this always took me by surprise and somewhat amused me that he would think of hope and compare it with a helmet. But you know, the more you think about that and try to use this simile in some understanding way, you know the old boy didn't miss it by too much. He tells us that hope is like a helmet. Now, what's a helmet? A helmet is something that insulates, it protects, it makes one feel secure. And a helmet is not something that fits on the foot, nor on the kneecap, nor on the hand, but rather a helmet is made for one place, on the head. And you know, that's just like hope. Hope, if you search your scriptures, is something that you don't have to run after with the foot. It's not something that you have to reach out with with a hand. It's in business for the head. It's the head where the hope is placed. And just like a helmet is of no value if you don't put it on, hope is of absolutely no value in this world if you don't put it in the head. According to Paul in his thesis, you see, hope is another one of those abiding values. Faith, hope, love, these three, you see, they don't have a beginning, nor do they have an end. You don't have to go out and purchase it. You don't have to go chase it down. It's here. We have hope. We lose hope, but hope never loses anything of itself. All you have to do is put it on. It's not something that comes only through education or reading Bible or attendance at church. It comes when you make the deliberate effort and have the discipline to put it on in the head. It's head business, this thing called hope. It's not something of the heart. It's not something of any other part of the anatomy. But it's in the head. That is where hope can be born. How? How do you put on the helmet of hope? I've been wrestling with this question for several weeks and trying in a very, what I hope will be helpful way. I've, I've come up with some of these ideas. First of all, I think you put on the helmet of hope by putting into the mind, once and for all, the idea that God cannot be finally defeated. God cannot be finally defeated. That may sound strange, but you see, the key word there is finally. Because though you may not agree, I am for one in the belief, which I think is scripturally taught and is of absolutely common sense. God does not cause all things to happen. No, I know we find some satisfaction and relief that even in the midst of the greatest turmoil, we, we try to pass on advice and believe that it's the will of God. I don't believe that. I think there are some things that happen in this world that God does not intend, but nevertheless, which he allows to happen, but through which he can work. I've made reference to it before, mostly in the classroom throughout this church, but I recommend wholeheartedly, if you really want to get into this subject, that you read 
that little book which is not more than five dozen pages long, which is most inexpensive and can be purchased in any good bookstore, Leslie Weatherhead's The Will of God. I'll repeat that. The Will of God by that great preacher from England, Leslie Weatherhead. In it, I think he says so aptly and completely my feelings and thoughts, which I think are born out of Scripture, that namely, there are really three things that you can call the will of God. One is the intentional will of God, those things that God intends. You see, believing that there are some things that he does not intend. Then the circumstantial will of God, those things that God, for some reason or another, allows to happen. But then above all, there's the ultimate will of God, which shall be... God working for the good in all situations and what ultimately happens comes from the goodness and the kindness of God. Now this is very difficult sometimes to comprehend. Oh, it's not bad when the days are good, but when the days are dark, it's so difficult. It's so difficult when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death to believe, to believe realistically that God is at work and that he cannot be finally defeated. It's so difficult when you're walking through the, through the valley of sorrow and personal suffering to believe it. But you must believe it if you're going to put on the helmet of hope because that is one of the things that you put into the head, the idea that God is working. You see, this motif is throughout all of Scripture. You don't have to wait for the New Testament. It's even in the Old. In the closing verses of the last chapter of the book of Genesis, here is Joseph together with his brothers, and, and the brothers are frightened now that the father is dead of retaliation by their brother whom they sold for practically nothing. But what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This hits its climax in in the whole experience of the motif that comes through resurrection first preceded by crucifixion. The whole Holy Week experience, you see. The day of Friday was very black with the ugliness that God's Son was killed. But all of that was turned around because of Easter morning. The resurrection and that day now, we don't call it Black Friday, we call it Good Friday simply because God cannot be finally defeated and God can take the ugliest thing, no matter how bad or horrible it appears, and he can turn it in for the good. And you see, this theme continues in the motif through Paul's great theolog theological treatise in the book of Romans, where he ends up that one great chapter that God works for the good in all things, not just some things. But ultimately, God works for the good in all things for those who love him and who are called by his grace. Put that on. Put on that idea. Don't pray for hope. You already have it. Don't wait for hope to strike you down. Take it. And you take it by putting on its helmet, by putting into the mind the idea that God cannot be finally defeated. And also coupling with it the idea in the mind that God uses the element of surprise. 
that God is a great artist in using the element of surprise, and he's been doing it throughout. You see, if you don't have the anticipation, the expectation of surprise, if you don't have that little child still within you, willing to look forward to sunrises and sunsets, to rainbows and the impossible dream, you really can't have hope. Because hope is built upon putting into the idea that God still works and still is surprising us. Do you catch that throughout the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation? God is surprising his people. And you see, that's, that's where the people in the day of Jesus got into trouble. They just would not allow themselves to be surprised that when the eternal God was going to invade history, he would do so in the form of a little baby. God surprised them in Bethlehem, and many people didn't catch it then and still have not caught it. That's a surprise of God. The theme that goes through the whole Easter Day experience recorded in all of the Gospels. What is it? The disciples who heard Jesus say that he would be crucified, but that he would rise again on the third day. When that third day came after his crucifixion, those disciples were surprised to death. Surprised so much that they were filled with fear. And when it came to Pentecost, that day which we are going to celebrate next Sunday in this year. On that day, what happened? People were surprised. People were born again. People were baptized. All because of the wind and the fire. And because they were willing to believe that God surprises people. That's why next week I, I want to encourage what Mr. Bruder announced. Please, please find a little red. Please bring it. And with that symbol, your expectation that things are going to happen. You're going to see baptism. You're going to see happiness. You're going to feel the surprises of God which can come through the breaking of bread and the pouring of the cup. God's people always get in trouble when they forget to allow themselves the privilege of being surprised by God. And they lose hope. But of course, you must remember that we can be surprised not only for happiness, but it comes also in the form of sorrow. I read the other day an illustration in a book by J. Wallace Hamilton, who was quite an inspiration to my father and whose books I have through the courtesy of my father's library. J. Wallace Hamilton now, too, has gone to his great reward, but boy, that man could preach. Didn't stand more than five foot five, and what's worse, he was a Methodist, but oh, he could preach. If you ever get any books, you read his sermons, and, and he had one on shattered dreams, where he used an illustration about the weirdest auction sale that there's ever been in the history of the world, in his estimation. It happened back in 1921 in Washington, D.C. They had an auction of all of the unused objects that were waiting for patents down in the patent office. 150 50,000 objects 
that had been dreamed and planned by people but which had never passed the credentials to become patented within the United States. And he said, what an enjoyable time it was. It was filled with laughs, seeing these different things that people in their hope had created, hoping that they would be adopted. There was one little gadget, he said, that was made to, to turn the butter and rock baby's cradle at the same time. The one that was most unique was a gadget that was used to prevent snoring. What it was, it was a long tube at one end, it fit in the mouth of the person snoring, the other end went into his ear. <laughs> yeah, you caught it. The idea was he woke himself up before he disturbed his neighbor. There was also one, the fella had a long tube, which he took to bed with him at night and he would breathe into it and his hot breath would keep his feet warm. The one that Hamilton liked best was the fact of pulpit, where you could push a button and it would rise or push it and it would lower. One day the auctioneer said that a preacher out in Ohio was preaching on the subject, where do you want to spend eternity, and inadvertently pushed the button and he disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Many, many laughs, 150,000 that day of that auction, but the thing that so many of those laughing people forgot is that they were also seeing the pitiful end of 150,000 hopes, people who had spent time, money, effort, and dreams hoping, and who hope, and whose hopes did not come alive. God surprises us. But may we remember that just as it is true with the dawning of each day that the darkest hours are always those hours just before daylight. May you people remember that the darkest hours of your lives will be those moments before the dawn of a new experience. God surprises Put that on. And then I think lastly, put on the idea that God's universe works best when God runs it. That's hope. When you have the courage to allow God to run the universe. And that's very difficult because I think some of us have a tendency to think we know what is best and we are working for the salvation of all people. If you don't believe it, just go to church meetings like I've been to. Everybody thinks his or her cause is the most important, and without it, the kingdom's going to fail. When are we going to learn to live by hope? Hope in the power of God. The best way I think we can do it is the way I read once of a man who every morning thanked God from the depths of his heart that he himself was not God. Mm-hmm. That's right. Raleigh Walker, who was a professor, they tell me, of Bible and religion at Ohio Western Wesleyan University. He was an individual who felt that the weight of the world were on his shoulders alone. He worried about his students. He worried about what he was saying and teaching. He worried about everything. And one night when he couldn't sleep, at 1 a.m., he got up and he went to his desk and he wrote this letter. To the Governing General of the Universe, dear sir, I hereby resign my self-appointed position 
as directing superintendent of my own life and of the world. I cannot level all the mountains of injustice or fill in all the valleys of selfishness. There's too much of it in me. I hereby turn over to you and for your disposition and use my life, my money, my time, my talents, and my all. Your respectful and obedient servant, Raleigh Walker. Thank God that you're not God. You won't be copping out. Instead, you'll be allowing yourself to be a used as an instrument of his power. And when we are instruments of his power, then we find the destiny for which we're created. It's a great day in the kingdom if we put on the helmet of hope young and old put it on put it on put it on amen eternal God our Father in heaven you've blessed us so much you've given us things at our fingertips to use you've placed in our hearts desires you have given our minds hope father just as hope springs eternal in the breast of each one of us give us the courage to put on the thoughts the helmet of hope on our minds and now may the grace mercy and hope of God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore Hallelujah. Amen.